No horse trained in Japan has ever won an American Triple Crown race, but that may change in the Belmont Stakes. We'll talk with the assistant trainer of Master Fencer. Plus, we'll get a more nuanced perspective on the latest outcry from California. All straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll sat. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch, it's a hip-hopping finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Lost amidst the whole Kentucky Derby schmazzle was the surprisingly strong finish of the Japanese-based horse Master Fencer, who finished sixth despite entering the race as a complete afterthought. Master Fencer did not run the Preakness, but his connections have opted to keep him here in the States to contest the Belmont in New York. And I think he has a real chance here. We'll get to why as we bring in the horse's assistant trainer Yosuke Kono here to win the gate. Mr. Kono does not speak English, so helping us out with translation is Mitsuoki Numamoto, racing manager for Master Fencer's owner. Welcome, gentlemen. Mr. Kono, what happened with the slight stumble the horse had while he was working out at Belmont Park last week? So uh, he tried to change the lead, but you know, because of the, at the moment, he was speeding the most. And just that timing to change the lead of the hind legs didn't meet. So uh, that's why it looks like, you know, he stumbled. How does he feel? So first thought, oh, maybe something happening or like even stepping or something weird, you know, stuff or maybe he couldn't run correctly or something. But next moment he recovered and uh, anyway, you know, I really wanted to finish, you know, his work uh, properly. So we, I asked him to focus again and uh, he finished us, you know, as I directed. So I'm so satisfied that, but, you know, he's... Uh, working or anything is totally perfect. I don't feel any problems out there. What was going through your mind during the Kentucky Derby as he came up the rail, especially all the bumping happening in front of Master Fencer at the top of the stretch? So uh, after he came back, because of the, you know, he, his finished position was actually more than like a tenth or I mean more than a half horses. So then, you know, eventually he finished at seventh. But at the time, I didn't know that you know what the finished position was. But when I saw his like a food and also the silks totally, you know, dirty because of the kickbacks, the kickbacks and so forth, I really felt, oh, you did a great job. Thank you so much. That kind of feeling I was having at the time. So and during the races, you know, actually we are just, I, mean, I was just looking at the, uh, only the master fencer, and then uh, I wasn't aware of the, what's going on with uh, in between maximum security and world wheel and uh, those, you know, horses. So that's why, yeah, you know, after the race, you know, uh, I replayed the video and stuff, and also I felt at the time like, 
Oh, okay, good. You know, there are no accidents and also there are no you know, affecting anything, you know, to the master fencer, which is good. I felt that way after the race, not at the moment. Master Fencer ran in two stakes races in Japan that offer qualifying points for the Kentucky Derby. He finished fourth and second in those races, but didn't win either of them. What made the trainer Koichi Tsunoda decide to bring the horse all the way here to the States when the opportunity presented itself? Basically, the owner, the Katsumi Yoshizawa, he's a really uh, big fan of the American racing. And then because of the point and also the three horses declined, you know, we could get a chance. So uh, Mr. Yoshizawa decided first. And then, uh, you know, we, actually we are not sure about uh, the racing and so forth because uh, even like a surface, we call like uh, Japan as dirt, but it's more sandy and here's more, you know, dirt and dirt. So that's why we are not sure how like American dirt fits to him without any such a knowledge and anything. You know, we just wanted to make some challenges. And then, you know, Mr. Tsunoda, her trainer, he agreed to the, uh, you know, even Mr. Yoshizawa such a challenging spirit, which is great effort, you know, to uh, make it happen. It's interesting you talk about the dirt surface because one of those qualifying races that we talked about was the Hyacinth Stakes at Tokyo Racecourse. Tokyo, it seems to me from afar here in the States, is a lot like Belmont Park. It's a left-handed turn, a left-handed course like we have here, and the dirt track at Tokyo is a mile and a third. Belmont Park is a mile and a half, and they're both very loose and sandy. Not so much like Churchill Downs, but Belmont and Tokyo seem to be a lot alike. Now, first of all, there are several racetracks in Japan. But as we know here in the States, some tracks offer more graded stakes and bigger purses than others. Where does Tokyo Racecourse stand in relation to the other tracks in terms of prestigious races? Does Tokyo offer more prestigious races than a lot of these other tracks? The this uh, race course itself is uh, you know very uh, outstages and um, uh, it has a uh, you know longest stretch uh, in, in Japan and also the final two, uh, one and a half hours there is uh, like a strong uh, like a very uphill. So which is, uh, you know, there is actually great uh, race place uh, to uh, compete, not only the speed, but stamina and the power. So in a sense, you know, because of the long stretch and also the uphill, you know, from the final, uh, from the fourth town to the, you know, wire, all the racing fans is going to get really excited and also the horses can compete with the full of their ability, which is, which means, yeah, you know, probably the Tokyo Racecourse is the best in Japan. Are more of the dirt races at Tokyo longer than a mile, or are they mainly a mile or shorter? So I can't exactly say from my feeling, because of the, you know, made on special weight in Japan on the dirt, it's more more like a mile. So uh, in that sense, I would say, yeah, maybe about a mile horses is the most that prefer the horses, I think. All right, well, let's put it this way. So in order to win long-distance dirt races at Tokyo like the Belmont Stakes, 
What kind of horse runs usually well there? A horse with a very quick turn of foot, or a horse that's more even paced? You know, depends on the pace and also how many horses competing or what kind of horses are there. I can't really say like,、uh, okay, so one pace running horse is good or you know like pitch type of the you know、uh, fast pitch horses are better or something like that. But, but because of the longer distance, maybe rhythm is the first really and、uh, important. And at the same time, how they can relax. During the drive, I mean during a trip, that is maybe more important to get a strong finish because of, you know, Tokyo Racecourse has a long stretch,、uh, as I said, and also there's、uh, like one uphill, so、uh, of course it requires a stamina, but of course the important thing is to save the ground for the、uh, last finish. So、uh, maybe yeah, like how they can relax during the trip will be the more important. Sounds a lot like the way horses are run at Belmont Park. Yosuke Kono, assistant trainer for Belmont Stakes contender Master Fencer, is with us here on In the Gate, helping us with translation. Is Mitsuoki Numamoto, racing manager for the horse's owner Katsumi Yoshizawa. Master Fencer had spent a week in quarantine, basically alone, in Japan before flying to Chicago and spending more time in isolation at Arlington Park. Then he shipped to Keeneland in Kentucky, and finally to Churchill Downs on the Monday before the Derby. How was he physically and mentally on race day, on Derby day, after all of that travel and quarantine? So、first, I was、uh, a little anxious because of the when he got into the current,、uh, export quarantine in Japan, he was not really eating well, and then because of the shipping to Chicago, the、uh, air trip. Is actually he was actually his first time. Then he touched down to Chicago, but、uh, you know, first his appetite was not really good. So、uh, I was kind of thinking,、uh, is he really going through or not? But、uh, you know, after that, after the release of the quarantine, we went to Finland first. Then you know, he was you know, he, we could grace him, and also、uh, he regained his appetite. So then, you know, he was、uh, regaining, you know, the weight and so forth. So, so you know, at that time, I was, you know, I was kind of relieved. But same time, to be honest, at the Derby, you know, he was not fully perfect for the race compared to,、uh, you know, the racing in Japan. So I was a little anxious about it. But you know, yeah, he ran well, and then he came back safely. He brought me the peace of mind eventually. What difference have you noticed in him from then, from Derby Day, to now, since he stayed here in the States ever since the Derby? When he was stabling in Japan, he was not really calm. You know, he was pretty noisy host. Since he, you know, came to the States and also he got to the Chacho Downs. You know, our you know our barn in it was actually right next to、uh, you know race track. I mean the main track. And then、uh, we were kind of anxious first, but、uh, even Oaks Day, you know, there are so many people around there, and it was so loud noises and so forth. But he didn't care at all. And even the Derby Day, he was not. So、uh, in a sense, especially mentally, you know, he's really growing up. And then even now. You know, because of such a you know, relaxed mood, and also that because of his such a mental growth, 
I believe that in his、uh, physically and mentally, you know, he's really in a good condition. When the gate opens up for the Belmont Stakes, what kind of trip would you like to see for him? So for me, the key is a positioning. We are all of us aware. Uh, positioning after the break and also to the like、uh, two or maybe、uh, two parents, you know, it's really important to get a good position in the front. So,、uh, but of course, he's not there at such a speedy, speedy host. So,、uh, I wish he could, he can get a you know good position like a mid or you know front. And if he could save the ground, he can probably you know、uh, show us a great late kick. So、uh, we expect to the Julian. About his sense you know, for the racing. Well, we certainly wish you the best of luck on Saturday. Thank you so much, Mr. Numamoto and Mr. Kono, for joining us, and the best of luck in the Belmont. Thank you very much. Thank you. The cry has come down from the mountaintop. The governor of California has hinted at shutting down horse racing in the wake of the problems at Santa Anita. We'll take a more nuanced view of this startling headline when the In the Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to In the Gate. We must hold racing accountable. Those are the words of Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, referring to the more than two dozen horses who have lost their lives at Santa Anita Racecourse since the start of the season on December 26th. Governor Newsom supports a California State Senate bill which would authorize the California Horse Racing Board to suspend a racetrack's license, in this case Santa Anita, to protect horses and riders. A rather austere measure we've not heard ever articulated before anywhere. In addition, the cries are starting to come from the mainstream media for a national governing body of horse racing, which right now does not exist. The setting of rules and enforcement of rules comes from each of the 38 state governments that sanction the sport in this country. We've certainly pined for it here on this little show, but the question is. Whether the climate is tipping enough to where rules will be changed to allow for such a thing, and if so, what form would it take? The story has gotten big enough to the point where we need someone who has a long view of this sport's evolution to gauge how much of this talk is grandstanding and how much is really substantive, and where it all goes from here. So for that, we're pleased to welcome back to In the Gate Ray Pollock, publisher of the Pollock Report website for the past eleven years. A man who has worked for a number of racing publications over the years, most notably fifteen with the Blood Horse, eventually becoming publisher. Welcome, Mr. Pollock. Let's start with the Gavin Newsom thing. First of all, clarify for us what his comments are and what they aren't. Well, I I took Gavin Newsom's comments to mean simply that he supports the legislation that. Would give the California Horse Racing Board the, the the authority to close down a racetrack if they felt there were some safety issues. Currently, they they can't they can't do that. When when Santa Anita was closed earlier this year, that was that was by management. They decided to to close the track by you know on their own. And you know we have we must hold the industry to account. And I I don't think the industry disagrees with that. And The thing that、uh, I, I think the thing that a lot of people are are missing out here is that the industry in California has made some I think 
very substantial changes and reforms to make racing safer. We, you know, California now has by far the, the toughest standards for for getting into a race, for medication regulations of any of any state in the country. But what mainstream media was reporting with these Newsom comments is that Gavin Newsom is shutting down racing. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, mainstream coverage of, of, of this whole thing has been sensationalized. and But that's what mainstream media does. I, you know, I, I can't really blame them. He's not shutting down racing. But to what extent is perception reality where people are thinking this, wringing their hands, etc.? And how much do racing people have to be wary and conscious of that? Yeah, well, the, the Thurber Owners of California had a conference call with members, and I, it was it was a really interesting call. It was you know it was I, I wasn't eavesdropping; it was open to media that wanted to listen. And one of the points they made was that with all of this media coverage, the the population of California, many of the people who live there are just now learning for the first time that horses can die in races that, you know, they'd never heard of such a thing. So it's going to be an educational process to one, explain that yes, horses can suffer fatal injuries when they're racing, but two, the tracks, the, the thoroughbred owners of California, the the California thoroughbred trainers have taken extraordinary steps to make it as safe as possible. And, you know, the fear there of course, is that, is that they're going to be ballot initiative. In other words, California, which has many initiatives on the ballots during their elections, might have a do you think horse racing should end question. And, you know, that's the big concern. And and that's why they're talking to groups like PETA when they make these changes, because as of right now, PETA is not interested in doing a ballot initiative. They're interested in the reforms. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. But I mean, look, there were a large number of people in England who voted on Brexit without knowing what the heck that was, and they have to live with that. Now, as we said, there have been more than two dozen deaths at Santa Anita since December 26th, but 23 of those occurred before April 1st, with very few thereafter. Has that factored at all into anyone's thinking? Well, I know it has inside the bubble, inside racing, because those three, and they took place over a nine-day period, in May, from May, I think May 17th to May 9th to 26th, one of the one of the horses was a Colorado bred gelding, who apparently was being trained by one of the one of the uh, stable hands, and it was listed uh, under a trainer who has since been kicked out of Santa Anita. Uh, another horse was a was a California bred gelding who was a a buyback at a two year old sale for $900 and was co-owned and was bred by a woman who um, whose, whose privileges with the jockey club have been rev- permanently revoked because she apparently was breeding thoroughbreds via artificial insemination and embryo transfer. And I question whether or not she should have even been licensed to own horses when you, when you have that kind of an ethical violation. And, the third one was was a Jerry Hollendorfer trained horse who was making his 49th start, dropping in class. Hollendorfer claimed him for 25. He was running for 10. And there should have been some flags that went up on that horse. What that speaks to, of course, is 
the short fields that we've seen in so many races this year. There have been many five or six horse fields and races at Santa Anita for not just this year, but for the past few years. Now, you spend a lot of time in California each year. You know a lot of the horsemen out there. You know a lot of the horsemen out there. What are they saying privately about racing in California in general and at Santa Anita in particular? Well, they're all nervous. And a lot of them, you don't need to talk to them. You can see that a lot of them have left. A lot of horses have shipped out. I think the number I heard was the horse population is down 600 horses right now from where they were a year ago. And you know, that's a lot of horses. And Santa Anita has cut back instead of running four days a week. Right now they're running three. Del Mar still plans to run five days a week. And it's going to be interesting to see how they can fill races. And something that's kind of new that may make these fields even shorter, the Strana Group announced that in order for horses to race at Santa Anita, Golden Gate, they're going to need, when they're entered, they're going to need a note, basically, from the veterinarian who attends to that horse that says, I have treated this horse. He is sound to the the trot, which means that he's sound. And he has no known condition that I'm, I'm aware of that should prevent him from racing. In other words, the onus is put on the private vets to say that every horse that's entered is sound. And that will probably knock field size down a little bit more. Now, not to add more bureaucracy, and we're talking, by the way, with Ray Pollock, publisher of the Pollock Report website here on Innegate, but we had Dr. Scott Palmer, the equine medical director for the New York State Gaming Commission, on the show not long ago, and he ostensibly said that all tracks need a steady stream of data related to all kinds of factors that affect equine health. Track condition, food intake, more detailed information on workouts, etc. And that way, when you get something going awry, as happened at Santa Anita, you can check the data and see what's different. What likelihood is there that a place like Santa Anita, or any track for that matter, is looking to beef itself up in that area? Well, he's a he's a smart man, Dr. Palmer is, and you know, that's a good idea. The equine injury database is something that's been helpful at identifying risk factors, but that's more of a backward-looking instrument that that looks at all the fatalities that occur in racing. And now they're building up, I think, a database of training injuries as well. But they do help tracks the the state veterinarians, the regulatory veterinarians. They do help identify risk factors. Horses coming off long layoffs, horses that were on the vets list at some point, horses that are making a major drop in class so that those vets can take a closer look at those horses than they might ordinarily do. Would Even if something like that does happen, I imagine that would certainly mitigate field size even more, right? Well, I think, you know, at this point, as far as California racing is concerned, I think they're, they're less worried about how many horses start a race, then how many horses finish a race. Now, the other thing that's happened recently is that some in the mainstream media, to be sure, people who don't know the nuances of the racing business, are saying that there should be a national governing body of racing. We who follow the business know that state legislatures control racing. We can't even get legislation to set up a national drug testing body for the sport. But are we getting any closer to a tipping point where rules can be amended or rewritten, where a national governing body would be a reality. I, you know, I've been, I guess, I guess, I guess I've been doing this for close to forty years, 
And for half of that time, at least, there have been efforts to try to get a league office. We've seen two attempts with it, one by the Thoroughbred Racing Associations, uh, which hired a commissioner who had absolutely zero authority, and one by the National Thoroughbred Racing Associations, who hired a commissioner who had only a little bit of authority. Until there's a, a league office that somehow has control of licensing, of all of the regulations, I just don't see how it happens. The, you know, there's been talk from time to time of the major circuits, the, the major racing associations, Naira, the Stronic Group, Trax, Churchill, Keeneland, Del Mar, forming a league and saying, okay, if you want to participate in races at, on this league, at this, at these tracks, you have to conform to all of these, to these rules. There's a separate licensing, but I think the legal challenges to that are very formidable. So without some sort of federal legislation that appoints, that actually appoints a designated authority, I don't see how it happens. Well, which do you think would be likelier? Members of Congress saying, we're going to rewrite these rules to allow a national governing body or saying, screw this, we're going to shut the sport down completely. I don't think Congress is going to shut the sport down. It's probably not on their radar that much. But if the industry or if a group in the industry went to Congress, went and it doesn't take that many people in Congress, and we all know right now that Mitch McConnell is the major holdout on the federal legislation that's been kicked around for the last few years. But if the major groups in racing said, okay, this is what we support as a unified body, then I think it could get passed. But... You know, when you include the racetracks, the HBPA, the THA, all of the other alphabet groups, you put them in a room, they can't really even agree on what day it is. <laughs> oh, more grist for the mill. I have a feeling this is a story that's not going away anytime soon, but it is terrific to at least have on this program a voice of reason rather than someone just shouting down from the mountaintop. And we appreciate you being that voice of reason. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Bert. Our thanks to Ray Pollock, Yosuke Kono, and Matsuoki Nomamoto. If there was a national governing body to which all tracks submitted, one thing it might address is the Triple Crown. Few horses run in all three races, so there's little chance to build a rivalry where each race becomes a smackdown. It's nice that War of Will might run the Derby Preakness and Belmont, but we'd like to see him face maximum security. Throw in a little country house, and you've got a race worth watching, but the timing of the races won't let it be. A national governing body might leave the derby alone, then space the other two four weeks apart. If the Preakness was the first week of June, the Belmont July 4th, you'd get many horses making all three starts. The Triple Crown is tough to win, three races in five weeks, but it would be equally tough the other way, because a horse would have to beat the best field in each of the three races with budding rivalries that would sure make hay. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.